I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, home of the modern whitetail hunter. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this week on the show, we're covering everything you need to know to become a more accurate and effective whitetail hunter with a gun. And helping me do that are diehard firearm deer hunters, Jordan Sillers and Spencer Newhart. All right, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by First Light. Today in the show, we are continuing shooting month, but this time we're stepping away from the archery thing, and instead I am joined by two serious gun guys who are also whitetail guys, and we're going to be diving into a whole host of different topics related to becoming a better shot with a firearm while you're out there deer hunting, how to become a more effective gun deer hunter. We discuss criteria for picking the right firearm, optics, ammo, and accessories for deer hunting. We talk about ideas for how to better practice with your gun in the off-season, stuff like proper trigger pull and breathing and shot process, uh, determining your max range with a firearm for deer, how accurate is accurate enough with a gun for deer. You know, is this super hardcore, long-range, super accurate, you know, range nut kind of thing. Is that necessary? Uh, What about dealing with target panic? We talk about that, uh, shooting in adverse conditions, and a whole lot more. So in short, if you plan on using a firearm for any of your deer hunts this coming year, and you're ready to invest a little extra time and energy into doing this better than you have before, this episode is for you. So without further ado, let's get to week two of shooting month. We're talking guns, for deer hunting and all things in between. Let's get into it. All right, with me on the show today to talk guns, we've got Spencer Newharth and Jordan Sillers. Welcome uh, 
welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thank you, Mark. Mark, when is the last time you killed a deer with a gun? You killed one in 2021, but before that, when, oh. when's the last time a deer died because you had a gun in your hands? Oh, man. See, you were so busy this past year, Spencer. You you totally blanked on what I did in 2021 because I killed all four of my deer with a gun last year. Oh, man. Can you believe I like that? that. This, Can you believe this it? This is a new Mark Kenyon. I know <laughs> you've you've inspired me after uh, one week in November and you trouncing every deer in town with your gun. I said, throwing the stick, stick and string out the door and I'm picking up the boomstick. So, so are you are you doing more gun hunting in 2022 now? You know, I don't have any gun hunts like traveling gun hunts planned. I'll, I'll gun hunt in Michigan. That's all I have planned right now. Um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not opposed to it. It just kind of depends on the situation and where I'm going and times of year and stuff. So yeah, I've got a lot to learn though. Like I definitely am the deer hunting or the gun hunting deer hunter who grew up in the world where, you know, we would go up like opening day of gun season in Michigan was November 15th. And we go up to camp on November 14th with our rifles. There was an old gravel pit down the road on some public land. We'd drive out there the evening of the 14th. We'd shoot at a pie plate at 40 yards. And if you hit the pie plate, you're good to go for the season. That was it. That was my gun hunting experience. That's what I learned to do. And I've kind of taken that into adulthood. So, so you know, this is going to be a good conversation for me today to hopefully dive deeper into it and become uh, become a little bit more effective. Because you guys... Supposedly, I know you, Spencer, have been preaching this forever. Jordan, I think you're probably in the same boat. You've been preaching the whole gun hunting for deer thing for a while, Spencer. Can you give me, let's start with you, Spence. Can you, for people that haven't heard your stories in the past here on the show, which probably have, but if they haven't, can you give me a quick rundown of your gun hunting for deer you know, experience or background and, and why it is that you like to do that so much more maybe than the stick and string? Yeah, like... Many deer hunters, I, I feel like they killed their first deer with a gun. And that was the case with me. It was a, a 243, an old Remington 700. I think I was probably 12 years old or something. And, and since then, I've, I've killed whitetails in, I don't know, eight different states from Kentucky to Montana to Texas with a rifle. Um, and whitetail gun hunting has probably been like my number one pursuit for the last five years or so. And I think like many hunters, my style of hunting is is sort of a pendulum and my first five years of deer hunting were basically exclusively with rifles uh and it was probably a product of it being the easiest entry for the world of whitetails then my next five years uh, i i did way more whitetail archery hunting than i did gun hunting because i yearned for a greater challenge um there was more opportunity with seasons being longer and, and tags being easier to draw um and i wanted to get whitetail get to know whitetails more intimately and try to kill them at like 10 yards instead of 300 yards. And now my last five years, the pendulum is like swung pretty far back the other way where I don't know, but maybe like 80 or 90% of my whitetail hunting in a given fall now is with a rifle. And I think it's more of the adventure part of it at this point. Like if I only have 20 days a year to deer hunt and on average it takes me three or four days to be successful with a rifle versus six or seven to be successful with a bow, then I'm rifle. Then if I'm rifle hunting, I can travel to like five or six different states to deer hunt versus only two or three if I'm archery hunting. And right now that's more valuable that that's more valuable to me. And I'm able to fit in like more 
unique haunts. Now, I don't think that'll last forever. I'm sure at some point the pendulum will like swing way back the other direction. And I'll spend 16 or 17 of those 20 days archery hunting and, and only a couple rifle hunting. But for now, it's it's the other way around. So uh, whitetail rifle hunting has, is, is my jam right now. I, I get that. That's a fair a fair explanation. Uh, Jordan, what's, what's your story? How did you, uh, how'd you get into gun hunting for deer and, and what's your background with that and, and interest in it? Yeah. Uh, so I actually didn't get started deer hunting, uh, really till I was an adult. Um, I'm one of those adult onset hunters you may have heard of. <laughs> I have. <laughs> um, yeah. But, but I've been deer hunting now for about 10 years, um, mostly here in Texas. And I know when when people think about hunting in Texas, they think about the kind of high fence private ranch operation, big bucks. I, I had someone just recently who heard I was from Texas and and kind of assumed that, oh, you must have shot some big bucks. Um, I've never hunted on one of those ranches. Uh, everything I've done has been low fence, um, small properties, maybe like 40 to 100 acres. Um, so that's really kind of where I got my start. And that's kind of what, what I've been doing. Um, but I actually was interested in firearms before I became interested in hunting, really. Uh, I, I kind of got into it through my, my in-laws, my brother-in-law was a big, a big gun nut. Um, and he got me into that. And then I I thought, well, you know, I have these guns, I should probably do something useful with them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So I, uh, I, that's kind of how I, I dip my toe in, into the hunting world. Um, but I've also been a gun writer for about eight years now. So I've had lots of experience uh, testing, shooting, all kinds of different guns. Um, so that's been, that's been a lot of fun. And, and tell me this then. What, well, let me, I guess I'm going to take a step back. This is, this is shooting month on the Wired Hunt podcast, right? So we're, we're really focusing all about the tool you're using to hunt deer and how to be more effective with it. The first step in being more effective as a gun hunter for deer, I got to believe is, is choosing the right tool for the job, right? I think that probably what I grew up doing is maybe not the best idea for new hunters today or adult onset hunters who are picking up right now. Like in my case, I just took my grandpa's old gun and I showed up the day before and shot a pie plate, right? If we were to, mm-hmm. if we were trying to do this in a more, you know, thoughtful way, let's start at the very beginning of this discussion. And Jordan, being the gun writer, I'm sure you've had many questions about this. I even think you might have written an article for Mediator about this. But what would be the things you're thinking about when choosing the right firearm for whitetail hunting? There's a lot of debate about this. Spencer, I'm sure you've got an opinion. But Jordan, can you kick me off with what criteria you're thinking about when trying to make that decision. And then maybe you can walk me through some of your, you know, best options, most recommended options, personal favorite, anything like that. Yeah, sure. Well, so I I think the, the most important thing, or maybe not the most important thing, but the first thing to remember is to uh, not get too anxious (laughs) about, about this decision, right? I think you can go online, you can read, uh, you know, articles that I've written, you can read uh, all kinds of debates about what's the best deer cartridge. Um, the The truth is that pretty much anything above uh, 223 Remington is going to do a pretty good job. 
right? And I would hate, and I would hate the thought that there's a new hunter out there who, who just gets so anxious about the 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 choice that they just don't choose anything and they never get out to hunt. So that's, I think, the the first thing to to keep in mind. Um, another thing that I think people kind of miss is that this this question of power right what's power what what cartridge is powerful enough to take down a deer again um you know anything ab- above a, a 223 remington is going to really have enough power so that shouldn't really be your primary consideration i would say more important especially for a, a new hunter or a young hunter um is going to be uh ammo cost and availability as well as comfort. We talk about this quite a bit in our caliber battles. Um, it's something that that you might forget about when you're when you're choosing what gun to, to pick, what what cartridge to go with. Um, but look at how much it costs to shoot it, right? Look at how much uh, a good hunting round is going to cost. Look at how much practice rounds are going to cost, and make sure that that you can afford to buy enough ammunition. To go out and practice quite a bit with it because um, because that's a, a really important thing not only practice but also um, you know getting that rifle sighted in uh, may, maybe a little more precisely than a pie plate <laughs> mark uh, would would probably be good so they you want say ammo to, yeah yeah you, you want enough ammo to do that um, also uh, you want enough ammo to be able to to find the brand and bullet weight of ammo that your gun shoots really well. Um, and that can take quite a few boxes to, to figure that out. So, so ammo cost and availability is big. Um, and then also uh, comfort of shooting, right? Of, of how much that gun is going to kick. That's big. If, if you um, don't like shooting your gun, you're not going to go practice with it. If it hurts to go shoot your gun, you're not going to shoot it very much. And worst case scenario, you develop a flinch where you're anticipating that pain in your shoulder and you can't shoot that gun accurately. Um, so while, you know, obviously it's important to choose something that has enough juice to, to take down a whitetail, um, I think ammo cost and availability and recoil are, are two really big factors to consider. Um, and you can find some of that information online, obviously, the ammo cost and availability certainly um, but there's really no substitute for experience. So if you have a, a friend who has a few of, of these cartridges that you might be interested in, ask them to take you to the range and and your choice might be a little easier than you think it is after actually shooting uh, some of those cartridges. So Jordan, if you had to if you had to recommend like your top two overall best options, I know there's a whole bunch of you know, specifics we could get into, but if you had to pick the top two most, you know, most useful options across the board, what would those be as far as, you know, a cartridge or a type of rifle? Yeah. Well, so I think the, the six, five Creedmoor is obviously very popular and there's a reason for that. It, um, it, it balances, I think the, the power you need to take down certainly a whitetail. Um, many elk have been taken with, with the six, five, uh, as well as that comfort factor I was talking about. So it kicks a little less than some of the other 30 caliber cartridges. Um, I'm constantly recommending 6.5. I've had great luck with 6.5s uh, out of factory rifles, shooting factory ammo. 
uh, very accurate. Um, so that's certainly a, a recommendation I would make. Uh, and then the other probably is 308 Winchester. The the 308 Win was my first deer rifle. Um, you want to talk about ammo availability? You can find it everywhere, right? It's it's a NATO cartridge. So not only can you find uh, really high quality, accurate hunting ammunition, you can also find bulk ammunition. You know the the cheap stuff that you can go out and shoot all day at the range and not feel like, you know. You have to take out a second mortgage <laughs> when you get home. Right. Uh, so yeah, the six the six five Creed and three eight win. Those are two two great options uh, for for any new hunter. Yeah, three oh eight's what but I start Jordan, with as well. Jordan, what if you were to own two cartridges for deer hunting? Like if if you were to have one that's on the smaller end of the spectrum and one on the mm-hmm. bigger end of the spectrum. If you were just picking two to own, what what would those be then? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you mentioned the 243. I think uh, a lot of a lot of people say that, that that's the smallest kind of deer cartridge they're they're going to go with. Um, I know Federal makes some some 223 Remington, which is a bit smaller. They they make some of those specifically for deer hunting, and a lot of people with the 223. Um, but I think just to kind of stay on the safe side, the the 243 is is a great option. Uh, that's not going to kick very much at all. It's still going to have, um, you know, uh, enough behind it to, you know, go out to two or 300 yards, but it's going to be very comfortable to shoot. Um, and then, you know, if, if you want to go longer range, uh, you can go up to the, you know, the, the 308 win is a, is a great option for that. Six five is a great option. Um, the, the seven millimeter Remington Magnum, that's, uh, kind of your, your classic long range, lots of power behind that. Um, you know, you, you can shoot all day with, with one of those. Um, so if you want to have two, one kind of light recoiling, you can get it in a small rifle, easy to handle. Um, and then if you want another four, you're going to go out, uh, you know, out West and, and maybe take a deer, um, in open country, uh, the, the seven millimeter, uh, Remington is, is a good choice for that. Have either one of you guys had any experience with the straight wall cartridge rifles now that are getting pretty popular across parts of the country? I've never hunted in a state that required straight wall, straight wall cartridges. So that's, that's pretty foreign to me, but Jordan has, uh, written about that subject for us. In fact, I think he's done an article that was like the five best, uh, straight wall cartridges for deer. Tell us about those. Jordan. Yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, I, I, I wrote up those, those five, um, the one I've had kind of the most personal experience with is the 450 Bushmaster. Um, and that, I mean, that has enough power to, you know, take down a tank. It feels like, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a big, powerful, powerful cartridge. Um, you don't have to worry at all about, uh, you know, about having enough power that, that one. You might start running into some kind of comfort issues, some some recoil issues. I've got a scar between my eyes from getting scoped by a 450 that will uh, frequently remind <laughs> me of that. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, people sing the the praises of the 350 Legend. I, I think, and I think that they have a point there. I think it's, I believe it's marketed as the fastest straight wall cartridge i may be getting that wrong um but yeah 160 grain projectile 
So, you know, a 308 is like you can shoot 150, 165. So it's the it's in the range of the 308 in terms of bullet weight. Um, going 2300 feet per second at the muzzle. It's supersonic past 400 yards. Um, so yeah, any any place where you're limited to a straight wall, the 350 Legend is going to be a, a great choice for you. And it's getting you know it's getting more popular, so it's a little easier to find. There are more uh, rifles chambered in that in that cartridge. That's always the kind of the thing you have to ask with the newer cartridges is how many rifles have been chambered in this? Am I going to be able to find something that that fits my needs? Um, but yeah, I think the the 350 Legend is is a good choice for the straight wall. Yeah, I can speak to that personally too. Is that's that's the gun I bought um, to hunt down in Southern Michigan, and it is it's a sweet little shooter. I mean, it's it's compact. It does not have very much recoil at all. It shoots just fine out to the ranges that I can shoot in Southern Michigan. You know, we're not taking 400 yard shots, but it shoots great at the ranges I'm comfortable at, and you know, just it's a really not even a very loud gun either. So it seems like a really good gun for newer hunters. Uh, I've been I've been really keen on that one. Um, yeah. Spencer, Spencer, can you can you add or do you have anything you would add when it comes to back to you know not straight walled but firearms in general, rifles in general? Do you have any other criteria that you think about when choosing the right firearm, right rifle, right cartridge, or do you want to weigh in on your favorites or recommended options? Yeah, I think um, Jordan was throwing around the example before about like being paralyzed by choices because there are so many choices. And and he specifically talked about like if you had a 223 um, and you were thinking about getting into hunting or whatever, 223 is is a great example for this um, hypothetical person who is flirting with the idea of deer hunting because we had, we had a trivia question once about what's the most sold um, ammo in America and it's the 223. And I think Jordan has written about before how like the most owned firearm cartridge is in the 223. Do I have that right, Jordan, or is that specific to like ARs? Yeah, I mean, I think the reason it's the most sold is because it's it's chambered in ARs and that's the most common rifle. Yeah, so if if you are that person who owns a 223 and you're thinking about getting into deer hunting, um, just go use your 223. That's that's like on the smallest end of the spectrum, um, but it's still you know an ethical round that you can use to bring down a deer. And and say you then decide that's for you, um, go buy a, a bigger rifle that would be more you know well equipped for your style of hunting. But if you have a 223 and, and you're thinking about it, um, just go ahead and do it. And you were asking Mark about like criteria. Um, for me, living where I do in the West, I really value versatility. Uh, last year in Montana, I used the same rifle to kill a whitetail, to kill an antelope, and to kill an elk. And that gun was a 6.5 Creedmoor. And what I love about that cartridge is specifically how little of recoil it has and how flat that it shoots. I find that I often wind up in awkward shooting positions where I don't want to have to think about what's going to happen to my shoulder when I pull the trigger. And the 6.5, you know, has about half as much recoil as more popular deer cartridges like the 30-06 Springfield or the 270 Winchester. Um, and and so the 6.5 is is my choice. Um, but I would also recommend like the 308 is a is a super versatile cartridge if you were just going to have one deer rifle. If I were to have two deer rifles, I think I would probably go with like my smaller caliber being a 6.5 Creedmoor and my bigger caliber being like a, a 30-06 Springfield or a 
seven mm um like jordan had talked about but again um with all of these choices there are trade-offs with whatever caliber you choose it's just like with broadheads mark um when you guys when you talk about guys having um like a single bevel broadhead that really mm -hmm. penetrates um deeply and it can bust through bone um but it maybe doesn't have as big of a cut or uh fly as well as like a mechanical which can you know throw a huge two inch cut but maybe doesn't get as good a penetration but it flies just like a field point so with all these choices you're making there's like no perfect answer or no perfect cartridge you're just talking about trade-offs at that point so whatever uh you know maximizes like value for you whether you hunt the big woods in wisconsin um or if you hunt out west in in idaho or if you hunt in texas um you're gonna find a cartridge that you think is like ideal for your situation that may be different than the guy uh who hunts one property over yeah now what about you know people are increasingly finding ways to customize their rifles or accessorize them in different ways is there anything spencer that i, I actually can think of one thing i know you use can you speak to any ways that you would recommend either modifying a rifle for deer hunting or any accessories you'd tack on it that are particularly helpful one of the great things about most of the people that are listening to this who are whitetail hunters is they don't need to spend a lot of money on accessories uh, now if you were having this conversation with like Giannis about hunting elk or Brody Henderson about hunting mule deer, it'd be totally different because those guys have to be really weight conscious. But most whitetail hunters that are hearing this, not so much. And so that's sort of something you don't have to factor into the equation as much if, if you're just hunting out of a deer blind in Kentucky. Um, but my most important accessory is the Swagger Bipod. And now we're not partners or anything like that. So this is like a genuine endorsement of Swagger Bipods. They allow you to shoot from whatever position you might end up in, like I said before, which which tends to be awkward, whether you're standing or kneeling or prone or sitting or leaning off of a tree or, or shooting from a blind or a tree stand, uh, that thing can always like give you a sturdy rest. Now, again, if you were talking to Brody or Giannis about this, they would think you're absolutely crazy for carrying around a bipod that weighs like two pounds. But if I'm hunting in in the Midwest, that extra weight isn't really a big deal. It's it's absolutely worth the advantage of being able to shoot from whatever position you might find yourself in. So I think specifically for a whitetail hunter, um, just knowing that you have a good solid rest, whether that's off of a bipod that's connected to your gun or a tripod um, that also doubles as you know holding your camera to take pictures, uh, just really focus on on that part of the hunt. Yeah. Jordan, would you, would you add yeah. anything to that? Yeah. Well, I second that on, on the swagger, the swagger bipod. Spencer, could you kind of explain what those are just for people who haven't maybe seen them before? Cause they're, they're a pretty unique, um, tool. Yeah. Most bipods that you use, um, once you deploy them, they're like a, a very stiff bipod that they, they go out to like 16 inches and they stay at 16 inches and you have to basically try to shoot them prone swagger allows you to extend to like sort of ridiculous ranges um where you can shoot if you're just like of an average height of like 511 you can use this bipod and extend it long enough to shoot while you're standing you just you know fold the legs in a little bit tighter um they also allow you to swivel around a bunch of directions which is is really cool if you're hunting um, in an area like 
I was last year in Montana for one week in November. I was hunting a spot that didn't really have a specific funnel and I wasn't sure what the deer were going to be doing. Having the ability to prop my gun up on a bipod and be, you know, have very easily like shoot all the way to my right at like, uh, what would that be, 90 degrees or go to my left at 270 degrees. A Swagger bipod allows you to do that. They're not as stiff or, or rugged as a traditional bipod, but if you're sitting on the ground leaning against a tree, um, and you want the ability to to make a variety of shots, that would be like my top recommendation. Yeah, yeah, they're very cool. I've I've shot them a couple times. Um, one thing I would add, and this really applies more if you're going to be shooting out, you know, 300, 400, 500 yards, um, is a bubble level that you put on your scope uh, to make sure that you're shooting. Uh, that, that your reticle is level when you're shooting. Um, I wrote a piece on this a, a couple months ago, and I was surprised. I talked with a guy at Vortex, um, and I was surprised at how much tilting your rifle to the right or to the left when you shoot can throw off your shot. Um, he did did some math for me and found that at 300 yards, um, a two-degree cant to the right or, the, or to the left can move your shot horizontally by almost nine inches. Um, and that obviously, uh, the, the effect of that is even worse as you uh, increase distance. Now, I don't wanna kind of over overstate this too much. It's not gonna be a huge deal if most of your shots are, are within you know, that, that 300 yard range, but having that bubble level on your scope uh, is, is gonna be able to tell you, you can just glance at it, look and say, okay, I'm shooting straight. Uh, I don't have to worry about this. I can, you know, either just hold right on or I can dial and and I'm going to be good to go. Um, so that's one thing. And they're not expensive, you know, maybe 30, 40 bucks. And, uh, and, and that'll help make sure that you're shooting straight. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. 
They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time, Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now, you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. When it comes to whitetail hunting, how how important is a good scope? I mean, you know, going back to my ill-advised childhood. I mean, we had like $30 scopes on our rifle. I, I didn't touch a higher end scope till I was in my twenties for guys that are just hunting farm country in Michigan or Ohio or Georgia, they're shooting 50 yards, maybe 150 yards, you know, that kind of stuff that most, you know, West or East of the Mississippi whitetail guys are doing. How important is a scope? Do we really need to sink a bunch of money into it, Jordan? Um, or is it really that important? <laughs> oh man. I, I really, I really have a special dislike for scope snobs. Um, it, it, it just kind of <laughs> bothers me when, when people say, oh, you really have to spend, you know, $2,000, $3,000 on a scope. Why are you putting that cheap scope on that nice gun? Um, but I get it right. Uh, I think for people who are hunting at those longer distances, it makes a lot more sense. If you're not hunting at those longer distances, I think uh, it could still be a good idea to invest at least some amount of money in a scope just for those low light conditions at dawn or at dusk when, you know, we hunt whitetail, uh, you want to be able to see clearly. And so, um, you know, I don't think you have to spend a thousand dollars on, on your, your scope for your deer gun. Uh, but, but I think it is worth it to invest just to get that clarity in those low light conditions. Um, you know, at least a, a couple hundred dollars, I would say. What do you think, Spencer? Yeah, I think scoops or I think scopes are super important. If I was building a whitetail gun for like a thousand bucks, um, I'd spend half of that on a scope and the other half on the rifle itself. Uh, Jordan, I'm curious to hear like your thoughts on that. If you were spending a thousand dollars on a gun that's going to be your whitetail gun, how would you break that down? Yeah. No, I, I, I like that. I, spe- I, I think especially because these days you don't have to spend a ton of money on a gun. You know, $500 is going to get you there uh, for a gun that's going to shoot as well as you need it to shoot, right? They talk about 
the gun shoots better than you do. Um, Five hundred dollars. That's that's going to be enough to to get you there. And so then, yeah, you can spend uh, the rest of that on a really nice scope and be sure that you know you're you're seeing clearly. Um, so yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. Yeah, and the difference between like a four hundred dollar gun and an eight hundred dollar gun is noticeable. But for a lot of whitetail hunters, um, maybe not necessarily, and it's not going to like kill them any more dead. But the difference between a four hundred dollar scope and an eight hundred dollar scope is is pretty enormous. Um, so if if you're setting aside a budget to buy a new gun, like spend at the top of your budget for a scope, and and you won't regret that. That scope will probably like outlive. The gun itself when you decide to move on and, and get a different cartridge or, or get a different gun or or you know change things up and go out west or get a straight wall cartridge whatever so again yeah. um i'd put a lot of emphasis on like making sure you have the right scope yeah no that's and that's a great point about being able to switch it to a different gun because the gun's gonna wear, wear out eventually um but if you take care of the scope you can you can move it over well what what makes a good whitetail scope then if you know, if we're if we're agreeing that what a Western hunter is different, what a Western hunter needs is different than what a whitetail hunter needs. But Spencer, you're saying we should still try to get as good of a whitetail scope as we can. What does that mean? Um, what's the criteria we're looking at that's most important for these types of situations? Well, a, a lot of the stuff is going to be obvious, and that's like the amount of light that you're letting in and and how crisp things look, and those are things that you'll notice like the second you go from a crappy scope to a very nice scope um especially when it matters most which is like that first half hour shooting light or that last half hour shooting light but i think more important to that is um getting the right magnification for whatever your situation might be now when i hunt in the west i'm, I'm using like a three by 15 power scope um but maybe if you're hunting like the the swamps of uh, mississippi or something um you don't need anything that goes beyond like six or something like that i don't know what that number would be because i I haven't been in that situation very much but just making sure that you have the appropriate uh size of magnification um because you can really hurt yourself if you're under magnified or over magnified um so getting that part right and then and then spending like a responsible amount of money and uh you'll be happy with whatever you get yeah yeah, and I think the the temptation is always to go for too much magnification, right? <laughs> like we want we want Hubble telescopes on our rifles, even if we're only going to be shooting at at fifty yards. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely agree with Spencer. All right, so let's say we've got our deer gun. Then we've got a four hundred dollar rifle that shoots better than than we can shoot ourselves. We've got a, as good of a scope as we can afford. It's got good low light. Uh, capabilities, not too much uh, mag power, and a swagger bipod on there. And now I am, you know, let's say I'm like one of the millions of deer hunters out there who traditionally have done what I do, which is you go out for opening weekend, maybe you go out around Thanksgiving, um, but then the rest of the year you're bow hunting, or maybe the gun hunting is all you do. But let's say this year you say, all right, I'm going to get better at this thing. I'm going to pay more attention to my gun. I'm going to actually invest some time and energy in doing this the right way because I don't want to have another miss or I don't want to whatever. When it comes to leading into the season kinds of work, like tuning your rifle or checking the zero in your practice, 
Spencer, what what does that look like for you as far as the preseason work with your deer gun, how you're practicing with it, tuning it, setting, anything like that? What does that look like for you? And, and what should someone be thinking about as they get, you know, try and take things to the next level themselves? I'm not super intense um, about my practicing. And, and it certainly requires, I think, less than someone who's trying to kill a deer with a bow, right? Then you, you recommend they're shooting year-round and they're ramping up as the season gets closer and, and, and things like that. Um, the reality is it'd be awesome if you did that with your with your rifle, um, but shells are expensive and it's not like you can, everybody can just like go in their backyard and, and uh, you know, let out 20 rounds or something like that. So if if you were going to practice like, I think an appropriate amount and you just want to burn through one box of shells, which these days is, is kind of expensive. That could be, you know, 50, a hundred dollars, um, depending on what you're shooting. I'd recommend trying to break that up into multiple sessions, right? So rather than going out and shooting 20 shells all at once, uh, maybe go out like four times in the couple months leading up and only shoot five rounds each or go out three times and, and only shoot like, seven rounds each um now the more shooting the better obviously but again that's just like not practical for everybody and just like with archery it's it's fun to practice at ranges beyond um what would be a realistic yardage and and that will actually give you some confidence when you do come back to a shorter distance right If, if i take out my rifle and um i can hit steel at 500 yards when i come back to 200 which is a more uh, realistic range that that feels like a piece of cake just like if you shoot your bow at 60 and then you come back to 15 um it makes that feel easier and so I, i'd recommend a little bit of that too but uh just getting like really confident at whatever you think your your yardage is whether it's 100 200 300 um and, and making sure you get out like three or four times you know in the months leading up to the season um that that's good enough to like make you a very effective rifle hunting uh, very effective rifle hunter. Uh, but I'd be curious to hear what Jordan has to say is someone who, you know, shoots year round. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you hit it when you said shoot at realistic distances. Um, I think your, your overarching, um, kind of goal should be to try to replicate as close as possible, the hunting situations you're likely to encounter. And obviously hunting is, um, you know, unpredictable. So you won't be able to, to always do that, but, um, you know, it's unlikely that you'll be able to take a shot from prone with your bipod, totally calm and relaxed. Right. I mean, it's possible, uh, but it's more likely you're going to have to shoot over some grass or you're going to have to shoot leaning against a tree or resting your gun on a fence post. Um, so when you, you do practice, I think it's, it's way more useful to practice those types of scenarios. Um, so you're not just, or shooting from the bench, right? I mean, I guess maybe if you're in a tree stand, it's somewhat like shooting from a bench. Um, but practice those field positions. So practice sitting, practice squatting. Um, I, I heard a, a special forces sniper once who said that he took most of his shots squatting uh, with his elbows rested on his knees. And that's how we took most of his shots. Cause that's how, if, if, you know, you're, you're in the field, that's, that's what you got to do. Um, so practicing those field positions is, is really important. Um, and Spencer mentioned kind of the, the cost of ammo, which is pretty insane these days. Um, one way you can still get in some practice 
without spending any money on ammo uh, is is dry fire. Uh, if you talk to guys who, who do a lot of competition shooting, they'll tell you dry fire is uh, invaluable, um, which you can do at home. You know, uh, just, you know, be safe, of course. Make sure your gun is totally unloaded. Uh, a lot of times guys will will dry fire like at their gun safe, just like, you know, that added level of safety. But just make sure that, that that's the case and then practice those field positions. But you can do it, you know, in your basement or um, in, in your room. And it doesn't feel like it's helping, but it really is helping because it's it's teaching you that trigger control. It's teaching you how to keep those sights on your target and pull the trigger without dis without um, disrupting those sights, which is when you're gonna miss, right? You can hold sights on a target. The reason you miss is because when you pull that trigger, you move them a little bit. Um, so dry fire is great. Um, I also recommend like getting a, a training gun in 22 long rifle or even like uh, an air rifle. Um, any Any trigger time is gonna be helpful for you. And again, going through those field positions uh, is going to make you a, a better shooter. Yeah, the field positions thing is is so important. And I consider myself like a a very experienced uh, gun hunter for deer. And something I didn't pick up until recently when I started shooting with Garrett Long from Meat Eater, who shoots probably more than anybody uh, that I know, was that if I were to go out to the range and I were to shoot like the 6.5 Creed more that I, that I hunted with all of last year, um, I would just shoot that off of a lead sled. And then that's that's what i would do that'd be my routine garrett long will absolutely not let me shoot off a lead sled uh, unless like my rifle isn't zeroed or something like that but assuming my rifle is zeroed if we're going to go out and shoot you know five to ten rounds he will not let me shoot off a lead sled he's making sure that i'm shooting off of my bipod while i'm sitting or shooting off of my bipod while laying um and i, I felt so dumb when i realized like that that was the correct course of action for practicing with your rifle and that it's actually pretty silly to just like sit there on a lead sled uh, and pull the trigger. So those field positions like Jordan was talking about, um, everybody, you know, should take that tip away from this podcast. Jordan, you had talked about, you know, that trigger time being so important to really understand how to control that trigger. And that brought to mind something that's so simple that I think a lot of longtime gun hunters don't even think about anymore but that is the right way to pull the trigger and shoot your gun. You know, I think I've heard so many different people say different ways to do it. You know, some people say take a deep breath and then squeeze and then pull, you know, when you release the breath, some people say hold the breath. Some people, you know, there's all this different stuff about breathing and squeezing and pulling and all that kind of stuff. Could you, could you walk me through what you think the right way it is to do that? So that someone who's either new Mm -hmm. or someone who wants to like check what their grandpa taught them, and see if it's right. Can you walk us through like the right way to do that so that when we are dry firing and practicing or on the range and practicing, we're doing it the best possible way? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, in terms of breathing, letting that breath all the way out is going to be the best kind of option. I know there's there's some debate about that, uh, it, but to me, it, that just makes the most sense. And that's what I've had the most success with. Um you don't want your body to be moving when you're trying to shoot a gun right you certainly don't want to pull that trigger as you're inhaling um or or as you're exhaling because your your chest is moving with those motions um so you want to you want to let that breath all the way out 
Um, and then in terms of your trigger pull, um, pulling it with that first finger pad on your trigger finger um, is going to make sure again that you're not disrupting those sites. You're not, uh, you know, jerking that trigger and moving the sights off of the target. Um, you're, you're, you want to focus on you let that breath out and then you put you uh, give that trigger a even consistent pressure. Hopefully, if you've gotten lots of trigger time, you've practiced a lot, you know exactly when that trigger is going to break even consistent pressure um, with that breath out and you break your shot like that. Um, that's how I've done it. That's how I was was taught to do it. And, and I've had success with that, uh, that method. Spencer, anything different for you? Yeah, I think um, one of the hardest thing to simulate even at the range is just like being out of breath when you have to make a shot. And I experienced that a lot hunting left of the Missouri River where I will spot a deer at like a thousand yards and now I got to close that distance to 300. So all of a sudden, you know, you've walked like a quarter mile or something and you're going up and down ravines and, and you get there and the deer's about to disappear over the next hill or something or, or cross the property line, whatever that might be. And then you have to make that shot after you know, you're now out of breath. And so I think one thing that you could try to practice at the range is just like step away from your gun, walk back to your pickup, um, walk around the pickup a few times or whatever, um, look at your phone, but just like walking while you're doing it and then come back and try to make yourself shoot within like, you know, the first 20 seconds of, of getting behind your rifle. Because I think a any of the deer that I've missed in recent years, it wasn't because I was nervous or because there was something wrong with the gun or, or my environment. Um, it was that like it got to the moment of truth and I had just um, like walked a, a long distance and now this deer is is about to hop a fence or something. I have to make a shot and, and I'm out of breath. And so I think that is is one thing that I would recommend practicing um, unless you're someone who, you know, hunts in Tennessee and, and you just sit in an elevated blind all the time, that, that won't really be an issue. Um, but for anyone else who's not in the Midwest, that could be uh, like something that you need to learn. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even, even if you are hunting in the Midwest from a tree stand, um, the sensation of target panic <laughs> is similar to the sensation of, you know, uh, like you're describing being physically out of breath. So I think if if you struggle with, you know, your heart starts beating out of your chest when you see that deer, um, that strategy that that Spencer describing uh, will help with that as well. It's just getting used to uh, making good shots when your heart's beating, the adrenaline's going. Um, it, it's it's great great uh, practice for for those situations. Let's talk and more about else that. that. I think. Go ahead, Spencer. Something else that I think uh, Jordan can speak to better because he knows the the physics of it um, is that you don't want to practice with a hot barrel. Um, it can be tempting to go out and like wrap up your whole, you know, shooting process in like 15 minutes or something. And in that 15 minutes, you sent like seven to 10 rounds downrange. Uh, that's too much. Your gun barrel is going to be hot. And if you're new to, to gun hunting, you might not realize like the effect that that can have on on your accuracy um and it, it might like 
make you tempted to then move your zero and you're making these adjustments and your barrel gets hotter uh, and it only gets worse from there. So speak to that a little bit, Jordan, about why it's important, you know, to be shooting with a barrel that's not smoking hot because that's not how it's going to be in the field and that can affect your accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. So you certainly don't want um, to, to zero your scope based on a hot barrel. Now, sometimes, you know, some guns do a great job with, you know, your, your point of impact doesn't shift much at all with, with a hot barrel. Um, some guns, especially a lot of hunting rifles, if it's a thin profile barrel, um, you can have a significant point of impact shift when that barrel is hot. Uh, so what I always recommend is if you're sighting in your gun, like, you know, at the, be- at the beginning of the season, um, sh- shoot your group right? Shoot three to five shots, same point of aim, adjust your scope, and then wait until your barrel cools off before taking another shot. Because your first shot on that deer, your barrel is going to be cold. Ideally, you do this with, um, you know, uh, the same outside temperature and at the same elevation, because that can impact your shot as well. Um, if, if that's not possible, you know, it's, it, you'll probably be okay. But Making that final shot where you confirm your rifle zero, you got to do that with a cold barrel. Um, now, if you're if you're practicing, right, uh, you're practicing those field positions. I wouldn't worry too much about making sure your barrel stays perfectly cold. Uh, you don't want to burn out your barrel. You don't want it to get you know flaming hot and melt. Um, but if you're just practicing on steel or whatever, you know it, it's not a huge deal if if your barrel gets gets hot but once you are zeroing it you know the the last shot before you go out to hunt you want to do that with a cold barrel um to to make sure you're replicating the the in the field scenario interesting um i want to go back to what you brought up jordan in regards to target panic and you know that's something we talk a lot about in the bow hunting world uh, maybe less so in the gun hunting world but i mean there's a plenty of ways that it shows itself, right? Whether it be in punching the trigger or flinching at the shot, or, you know, in my case with my gun hunting experiences, it's, it's just always been that I rush the shot. Like, I mean, as soon as the crosshair is behind the shoulder, it's, it's being sent. Like that's been something I fought for a long time. I can only think of like one shot ever with a gun that I can really tell you honestly that I like really slow down and let the crosshair just sit on the deer for a little bit of time before I squeeze the trigger. Thankfully, that was my longest shot I've ever taken at a deer and I got it. But, uh, I've, I've had trouble with this is what I'm trying to say. Um, so my question is for folks that have experienced that for people that are experiencing that, how do you tackle that other than doing the, you know, run around and train and get your heart rate up and practice like that? Um, I've spent a lot of time learning about dealing with target panic with a bow. I gather there's probably a lot of things that are similar, but from a gun perspective, how do you help someone dealing with that with their firearm? Yeah. I mean, good question, <laughs> right? Um, I think it, it goes back to practice and confidence because the more you practice, the more confident you're going to be in, in your ability to make a shot. And so even when your heart is racing and you're shaking, you're, you're going to know and your body to make a good shot. Um, so you, you can still feel that confidence, even though, you know, 
your your adrenaline is going. Um, and, and again, that that goes back to practice. Um, speaking of kind of uh, mistakes or or bad shots, one time this this really affected me uh, was when it, it wasn't a very long shot. I was I was doe hunting, um, and I I but I still you know got got that hit of adrenaline. Um, I didn't have a great rest, and I had also been uh, shooting earlier in the day with a different gun uh, that had a much heavier trigger. So when I went to pull the trigger on my deer hunting gun, I mean, that thing went off <laughs> when I did not expect it to. Um, so, so I think uh, another thing just to kind of, you know, get really dialed in right before that hunt is as you're going out, but before you leave, uh, do a little bit of dry fire just to, to, again, remind your body of this is what the trigger feels like when it goes off. This is how much pressure you need to put on it. Um, and, and that, that'll help you even, uh, in those moments of, of target panic. Spencer, what about you? Have you, have you ever dealt with that at all? Um, a, a little bit. I experienced it far more, um, using archery equipment. And I think the same things, Mark, um, that, make somebody a good shot with a rifle would apply to making them a good shot with a bow. And I know you've talked about this a lot um, in, in what it takes to get rid of that target panic, but all the same things that you emphasize, um, you know, when you're, you're shooting an arrow apply to when you're shooting a bullet. Um, I think if you took somebody like Levi Morgan, whoever the best um, archery hunter, you know, is I'm sure they would, they would also excel sitting behind a bipod on a rifle, um, all those same things seem to translate. Yeah, that makes sense. So, so then here's the question, I guess it's kind of a two part question. Um, how do you know you're shooting well enough to go out there? Right. I mean, I recognize that my childhood experience was probably not the right answer, right? Hit apply, hit a pie plate at 40 yards probably doesn't mean you're accurate enough these days to go out and shoot a deer with a gun, at least not advisable. Uh, what would you guys say is accurate enough? You know, if I'm shooting two inch groups at 200, am I good? If I'm shooting one inch groups at hundred, am I good? Is it, is it something else? How, how do you guys measure that? How do you determine what's accurate enough and that I'm ready to go out there and do this thing well? And then secondly, part two of this is how do you determine what your max range is? How would you go about that, Spencer? Well, I think for determining your max range, um, for most whitetail hunters, their environment will determine that. Um, I, I don't think that there's a lot of people hunting, uh, you know, like east of the Mississippi or east of the Missouri that would have many opportunities to like take a 500 yard shot or a 600 yard shot or something like that. So I, th I think for a lot of folks, that's just predetermined basically by what they're hunting in. But if you do hunt in the West or where it's more open, or maybe you're hunting an enormous ag field um, where those kinds of shots exist, um, then I think it's, I don't know if there is a good rule. Um, like I feel like we often hear with our tree equipment that it's like at 10 yards, you should be shooting one inch groups or something like that. And, and maybe Jordan is aware of like a, a good rule for that kind of thing. Um, but you'll recognize like if you're accurate enough to go out and ethically kill a deer and you have to think about usually you're you're aiming for their lungs which are about the size of like a a pie plate and so if at 100 yards you're throwing like two inch groups and at 
you know, 200 yards, you're throwing three or four inch groups. Um, that's, that's plenty accurate to go out and kill a whitetail, assuming, you know, all other factors uh, are, are not making you inaccurate. So you're telling me that when I'm reading in these like gun magazines and they're talking about how all their bullet holes are touching each other and they're within like one eighth of a millimeter and every single one stacking on top, I, I'm not supposed to do that. I mean, any rifle that we're shooting is probably capable of that. But when we're behind a bipod or, or you know, resting um, on our knees or something like that, no. If, if you can throw, you know, a couple inch grouping at a few hundred yards, um, that's that's plenty accurate to like effectively and ethically kill a whitetail. Yeah, Jordan, what, what's your take? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with Spencer. I think we're more likely to be limited by our own skill as a hunter than by the limitations of the ammunition we're using, right? Because you you can you can determine uh, how far your bullet is going to expand, right, and reliably dispatch an animal. The the ammo maker is can tell you how fast does that bullet have to be going uh, to reliably expand, and you can use that and calculate. Okay, the bullet's still traveling at this speed at 800 yards, so that is my max effective range. The, the problem is that that's probably not your max range, <laughs> right? Um, un- unless you uh, have extensive experience, um, unless you are very comfortable making wind calls, unless you um, are, are very confident in your, your range finder, um, your max range is limited to what you can shoot in that specific situation. Um, I, th- I think the, the pie plate thing, uh, it's not a bad like thing to think about, right? Because everyone knows how big a pie plate is, and that's about as big as the the vital area um, uh, of a whitetail. So if if you think you might make a three hundred yard shot, um, take a pie plate, put it at three hundred yards, and shoot from those field positions. Shoot from the positions you think you're likely to shoot from in the field. And if you can if you can group those shots near the center of the pie plate. I think you're going to be good to go. Um, if you're shooting all over the pie plate, right, and one like kind of barely nicks the edge, then maybe you want to bring it back a little bit because in the field, again, um, you, you know, you're going to deal with weird weather. You're going to deal with your own adrenaline. Um, so you want to make sure in that controlled setting of the range, you're, you're hitting near the center. Uh, but yeah, like Spencer said, a couple inches at two or 300 yards, you're going to be good to go with, with most situations you're going to encounter. Okay. How does, how does all this look in the field? I mean, when I think about my archery shot process, I'm in the tree, I see a buck come in, he's moving into range. There's a whole series of things that I'm doing to prepare myself for the shot and to actually execute, you know, all the way to firing that arrow down range. Jordan, can you walk me through, what that process looks like for you with a firearm. I'm really curious about like all the detailed things, like what you're thinking about, what you're checking at each different point. Um, You know, I'm I'm curious if there's anything here that we can get better at. For me, it's always just been like an automatic thing I've done since I was a kid. I'm curious if there's a better way to do things when it comes to actually getting into position and executing the best possible shot on a deer with a gun in the field. What does that look like for you? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm curious also to hear what Spencer has to say, just because of, of his extensive experience with this. But um, you know, for me, uh, the first question is how far away is is the deer, right? Am I going to need to have have any holdover? Am I going to need to dial my scope at all? Um, you know, in most whitetail situations, probably not. Especially if you're sighted in at 200 yards, you know, you're probably going to be able to hold right on target. Um, once I once once I am comfortable with the range, I'm comfortable that this is the animal that I want to take. Um, I'm going to get behind the scope. Now, I think. Uh, I struggled with this when I was a new hunter uh, is getting a good sight picture can be challenging in that scenario when you're when your adrenaline is pumping right you you get down behind the scope and now all you see is black <laughs> uh, and I think if if you grew up with firearms maybe that's not so much of a struggle for you but if you didn't um, practicing getting that good sight picture is important before the hunt so that once you get there you can immediately bam, you're behind the scope, you have a clear sight picture, and the animal is in your scope. Um, that's another thing. Sometimes you, you see through the scope, and now you're not sure where you are. You're kind of lost. Um, so, so practicing that beforehand is good. Uh, one thing that I've found to be useful is having a good uh, cheek riser that's at the right height. Um, that way, my, my cheek goes down and I'm automatically at the right height, so I, you know there's there's a better chance of of getting that good sight picture. Um, once I have that good sight picture, you know it's it's just kind of back to what we talked about before: controlling breathing, focusing on that trigger. Um, that's something that that I tell people all the time is is the the most important thing when you're breaking a shot is that trigger control. Um, is just focus on making sure that trigger press is um, consistent and that you're pulling all the way through um, because because that's what's going really going to make or break the shot is that trigger. Um, so once you know once you break that shot, that's that's kind of uh, hopefully you've, you've made a good one. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients and as often is the case those guys were on to something because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised, grass-fed, and finished cattle. Heart and Soil's unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean, convenient, taste-free capsule. Find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. 
O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself. And you can find what you need in store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that Seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. And it's really simple. When you pour it into your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can into your gas tank and let it do its job. Now you probably know someone who's used a can of Seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. Because people everywhere rely on it to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. So, help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. When are you addressing the safety? Do you, do you pop that safety off as soon as you've got the sight picture, as soon as the crosshairs are on the vitals, as soon as, as, soon as when? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I think probably as soon as uh, I get the animal in the crosshairs, that's when the safety is coming off. Now, I'm not putting my finger on the trigger until obviously the animal is where I want it to be and I'm lined up and ready to shoot. Um, but, but yeah, flicking that safety off. And, you know, I, I forgot that even as I was describing this process. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's happened to the best of us, I think, where we forget to flip that safety out. Yeah. Uh, Spencer, what's your process look like? I think one of the number one things you need to remind yourself if you're gun hunting um, for deer is that you can take your time. If, if you're an archery hunter who is um, getting into gun hunting, you're probably familiar with how it can be, you know, middle of November and you're hunting a funnel during the rut and an entire encounter with a deer can happen in like 10 to 15 seconds and that's it and that's your only chance um with gun hunting it's it's rarely that quickly you can take your time and like calm yourself down um and get a good steady rest rather than a, a mediocre one um because a lot of times that deer probably doesn't even know that you exist and and there isn't uh like a real threat of you moving your knees a little bit or bringing your gun up higher on your shoulder because the thing's 150 yards away and, and doesn't know that you're there, uh, which isn't like, uh, uh, it, it, it's not something that really translates to archery if you're familiar with, you know, the intimate encounters that you have with deer. The other thing is um, ahead of time, knowing the zoom of your scope. 
it can be common for you to like go out to the range, right? And the last shot you take is at 600 yards and you hit steel and you're feeling real good. And, and that's the shot that you end on. And then you go hunting opening day and, and you pull up your scope um, like when it matters and you realize that you have your zoom turned up to like 14 or something. And then all of a sudden you're dialing back and you're, you're adjusting your clarity and, and things like that. So ahead of time, whenever you sit down, we're like, you think you're hunting uh, and you have your, your gun on safe, um, sit down and, and look around through the scope and figure out, you know, what you want the zoom to be. If the things that 350 yards uh or if it's at 75 yards um and then you should also just like when you're archery hunting range things ahead of time and so if you're sitting in a tree stand and, and you know that this uh trail is eight yards and that trail is 19 and and this tree is 24 you should do the same thing when you're gun hunting you should know uh like roughly okay that tree is 100 yards and uh the the top of that hill is 200 um, and things like that. You, you'll likely have enough time to range deer and get a precise range because, like I said, the, the gun encounters aren't as quick or immediate um, as archery encounters are, but it's it's something else that you should be doing ahead of time, uh, just like when you're hunting with a bow. Yeah. So does your process look any different, though, as far as like the actual steps you're taking than Jordan described? No, I think I think it's pretty well the same. Um, like you, you acquire your target, like you, you bring your eye to the scope. That's when I flip flick off um, the safety. Um, so I, I think it sounded very similar to, you know, what Jordan does when he's gun hunting deer. Do either one of you guys have any kind of uh, internal monologue or mantra or words that you're repeating yourself to try to help focus on these important things? You know, that's a big thing in the archery world. Um is that something that's ever played into firearms for you, Spencer or Jordan? For me, um, not very much. Um, but, but I also kind of choose to hunt with a caliber that doesn't have as much recoil for that reason. And I think people, it probably happens to, and they're not even aware of it, that they're like bracing themselves. If they're shooting a 270, um, that they're, they're shooting a, a, a large bullet out of, um, that they have to like kind of choose to think about the recoil that's about to happen. That's one of the reasons I love to shoot with a gun like a 6.5 Creedmoor is that never crosses my mind as far as like what's going to happen to my shoulder after I pull the trigger. I think some people do have to think about that if they're shooting a 30-06 or a 7mm. Um, but as far as it goes, um, pulling the trigger, I, I don't have any mantras or, or anything like that, but I wouldn't be surprised if people – you know, have that without even realizing it when they're shooting a gun that, that really kicks them. Yeah. Yeah. I don't have anything specific. I think just, I try to breathe and control my breathing and then just focus on that trigger. I mean, I might, I might even think that in my head, focus on the trigger, uh, just because that's, that's what I, that's all I try to think about <laughs> as hard as that is, uh, when I'm, when I'm in that situation. Yeah, and I think new shooters um, probably wouldn't even recognize like what a good trigger pull feels like. And I'm, I'm specifically talking about the weight of the trigger pull. 
I've only had one rifle in my life that I considered to like be inaccurate. And it was because the trigger pull was wildly heavy. And I even took it to like a gunsmith to, to get it addressed because I couldn't get it taken care of. Um, and, and he ran into the same issues where he couldn't get it any less. Uh, but I, I'd be curious, Jordan, to hear your thoughts on on like the weight of a trigger. I think ideally you're in like the, the four pound range or five pound range. Um, a really heavy trigger pull could be like almost double digits and it's like replicating a yeah. handgun at that point. That's not ideal. You you want a trigger pull that's not so light that it's going to go off if, if you bump it, but also um, like light enough that you don't have a long trigger pull where you're really thinking about it or you're unsure when it's going to go off or you have to think about how much emphasis you're putting on on your finger pulling the trigger. And it's probably like one of the cheapest cheapest ways to just making a rifle more accurate is getting a trigger pull that's right for you. It's something you can probably address after watching like a YouTube video or just taking to a gunsmith and, and they'd probably do it for free and, and just ask you to like, uh, next time you got a more serious matter, you know, bring me your business. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, a trigger is, is one of the easiest things in a lot of rifles. One of the easiest things you can swap out. Um, a lot of aftermarket trigger companies, make drop-in triggers for the most popular uh you know bolt action hunting rifles so it's just a matter of taking that action apart you know um taking out a couple screws and, and putting the new trigger in um and it can make a world of difference i mean it's it's not going to make the gun more mechanically accurate but it's going to make you more accurate with the gun without question um especially if you're going from a trigger like spencer's describing to a really nice trigger um, a lot of them are also uh, adjustable, so uh, pretty common. It's pretty common to be able to adjust them between two and a half and five pounds. And I would say any anything in there that you're comfortable with uh, is going to be a, a great trigger. And it it's really about it's about the trigger weight, right? You don't want it to be too heavy, but you also want that break to be really consistent, so it's breaking at the same weight every time. Uh, and then you also want the the break to be uh, it's described in a number of ways, but usually it's like you describe it as a crisp break, right? It's not mushy, it's not gritty. It's like you're just pulling back, applying that consistent pressure, and then all of a sudden, bang, right? It's like kind of like glass breaking. Um, that's a really good trigger that you're gonna have success with. And the the nice thing is that a lot of, you know, if you're buying a, a new gun, that was manufactured within the last few years by one of the big gun companies, it's probably gonna have a really good trigger in it and it's probably gonna be adjustable. Um, and that's great. I mean, you, you may not need an aftermarket trigger, but if you have an old gun, um, that's definitely a great upgrade you can make. So would what's you- What's the spectrum, uh, Jordan, what's the spectrum of like weights that you're pulling on your triggers, even for guns that you're not using to hunt with? Yeah, I mean, so I think the like the the military that's the mil spec weight uh, for like an AR I think is like eight pounds, um, and that's you know that's a decently heavy trigger is is eight pounds. Um, double digits is incredibly heavy and in, incredibly long. Uh, that you're gonna find maybe in like um, like a revolver, right? Like a like a double action revolver where it's just super long and super heavy um for for handguns i mean even handguns these days you can you know uh five six pounds is is pretty common for for a new handgun um 
but yeah, if you're looking at, at, at a new hunting rifle, three and a half to five pounds is, is probably what you're going to be looking at. I'm going to guess that my 1972 semi-auto Winchester does not have a good trigger pull. <laughs> <laughs> that was, uh, that was the first rifle I used in. I remember I tried to sight that in at long ranges to take to Mexico for a coos deer hunt, and I could not understand why the lead was flying all over the place and couldn't group well. It uh, it was pretty obvious once I started thinking about that. Um, speaking of the bullets going all over the place, the last thing I want to cover is shooting the elements and how that stuff can affect your accuracy um, in a whitetail scenario, at least. So, Jordan, what about the wind? You talked about earlier how you know, maybe you need to account for wind in certain situations. At what ranges would I actually have to think about wind at all? Knowing that in a lot of whitetail scenarios, no, I'm not shooting that far out. Do I need to care about wind? How do I account for wind? Should that factor in at all? Yeah. I mean, I think within about 300 yards, um, unless you're talking about like a gale and you're shooting a very slow round, um, probably not, uh, past 300 yards, you're going to want to be thinking about it. And the, the problem with making wind calls is that it's very difficult. <laughs> um, it's, it's tough to judge if, if you are in a stationary position, what the wind is doing 400 yards away. Um, and that really goes back to just having experience with that rifle and with that caliber and knowing um, what you want to do. And I, I, I mean, me personally, I'm not going to take a shot if I feel like the wind is so strong and I'm making uh, a very, you know, a, a longer distance shot. Um, just because I don't, I don't know enough about the situation to, to make what I think is, a, is an ethical shot. Um, well, but yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, what do you consider a gale force wind? Like what's that number for you? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's not actually gale force, um, but anything above 20, 25 miles an hour. And, and it depends too on the direction of the wind, right? Like if it's a tailwind coming from straight behind you, or if it's a wind coming from straight in front of you, um, that's not going to affect the bullet a whole lot. But if it's coming from 90 degrees on your left or your right, uh, that's going to push it quite a bit more. Um, if you want like, uh, uh, more of a range, a a lot of the, well, all of the, um, like ballistics calculator apps will make those calculations for you. So you just plug in, here's, here's my, my cartridge, uh, here's how fast it's going. And you can see, and you can play with those wind numbers to see, okay, at 300 yards, uh, the wind is coming from directly on my right. Here's how much it's going to push the bullet. Um, and that could be revealing, but again, it's going to affect you a lot more if you're making long distance shots within a couple hundred yards, you know, it's probably not going to to matter a whole lot. Okay. Spencer, you're out there on the great plains a lot, South Dakota, Montana, Wyoming. It's windy as hell out there. Has this factored it in at all for you? In the field? Um, no. And when you're talking about heavy winds, it's not so bad if it's like a consistent heavy wind. But as like more experienced shooters than me have pointed out to me, if you're hunting in a Western state and you're shooting across like 
three or four different coolies um, to your target, all those coolies can have different like different thermals and one can have the wind just ripping through it. And the next one uh, may not have much wind at all. And the other one um, may have like a medium amount of wind and just having inconsistent winds, I, I think um, is like even a bigger problem than having just a 90 degree wind that's like 15 or 20 miles an hour, but it, it's still not enough that's going to affect um, most shooters. I think the bigger thing in in nasty conditions, whether it's like wind or rain or snow, um, are your optics and you can have, it's really cheap to buy scope covers um, and you don't need them for every hunt and not every hunter needs them either if they're like shooting from an elevated blind or something like that. Um, but if you are just sitting on the ground a lot or leaning against a fence post and, and you hunt in an area um, that's going to get rain or snow, get yourself some scope covers because you can have snow that totally like fills up the front of your uh, rifle scope and you not even realize it. And then when it comes time to shoot, you're trying to clean it out and then you're just smearing it. Um, and that's not ideal. So some cheap scope covers uh, could prevent that. Also, just like putting a piece of tape over your rifle barrel. I think Jordan could speak to the the specifics of that, but that'll keep moisture out of your rifle barrel. I think it's been proven that that doesn't affect accuracy at all. It's not going to change the ballistics of your bullet, um, but it's just like a good practice to to keep your barrel from, you know, rusting out or, or getting moisture in there. But I think like the biggest thing when we're talking about the wind and rain and snow is just making sure that you're comfortable. If, if you can't like feel your fingers um, or you're distracted because sleet is hitting you in the face and uh you can't like focus on your trigger pull or, or acquiring um you know the the target in your scope that's a way bigger problem than it actually like affecting the performance of your gun so just make sure that you know you're dressed for the conditions and, and you don't get sweaty on the walk-in um and, or that your toes aren't freezing and you're thinking about those things because again like jordan said earlier uh your rifles are going to outshoot you yeah yeah, that's 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 a great point about making sure you are comfortable in the weather. Um, and yes, I I believe that uh, I've 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 seen guys use electrical tape, um, the the black electrical tape for to cover your your barrel, and that's not gonna that's not gonna do anything um, in terms of of your shot. Uh, you shouldn't worry about that, but it it could affect your shot if you get rain in there or or dirt or something. Um, so yeah, the, the tape's a good strategy. Jordan, is there anything with snow or rain that would impact or that would influence accuracy so much so that, you know, you would say, well, because of this, you know, all the snow coming down and because of this cold rain, I'm not going to shoot as long of a shot as I would otherwise. Is there any kind of ballistic impact that we should think about, you know, outside of just wind? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I feel that probably um the rain is the rain your visibility before they're gonna affect the bullet um so you know if it's if it's pouring down rain or, or the snow is really coming down hard you're not gonna be able to see that far out anyway and so it's not really gonna be a, a question um i don't know specifically how much uh like you know a moderate rain uh, is going to impact the flight of a bullet. I I would suspect very little, um, but again, like with everything else, it's going to 
impact it more at longer distances because that and everything affects it more when it's going slower. So yeah, I, I think that that's probably not a situation you should worry too much about in terms of your bullet, but just make sure you can you can see your target. Yeah, fair enough. All right, guys, I got one final question. And maybe, you know, your answer, you can repeat something we've already talked about, but let's just say we have a listener here who is a longtime hunter, a good hunter. He or she feels com- comfortable and confident out there. They've killed a lot of deer with a bow. They've killed t- plenty of deer with a gun, but they've always put more of their time and emphasis and energy in getting better at the bow hunting side. But this year, they really, they really want to give that extra love to firearm season. If you could give them just one thing out of the million things we talked about today or, or something else entirely, if you want to give them just one marching order, one takeaway, one action you want them to take this year that's going to help them be a more accurate, effective shooter of their firearm when hunting, what would that one thing be that you want to leave that person with? Uh, Jordan, I'll make you go first. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, I would say... Um pick three field positions and just get really good at it. Uh, get, get really good at, at shooting from those three positions. Um, do more dry fire and shooting with, uh, you know, a, a bolt action 22 than with your actual hunting rifle, but certainly don't ignore shooting with your hunting rifle. Um, but just every time you go to the range, uh, work on those three positions and get really confident. Start at, 100 yards or 50 yards and work your way out to three, 400 yards. Um, and it's, it's, it's going to make you a better hunter, but it's also just kind of personally fulfilling to, to develop a skill like that. Um, it's just a lot of fun. Yeah. Spencer, what about you? I, I think about this a lot with one of my buddies who is like the best archery deer hunter I know. Um, and, and he is incredible at killing deer at 15 yards away. And a couple of years ago, I convinced him to pick up a rifle and, and start hunting just because they gave more opportunities and could travel more and things like that. And, and he did that. And it was super hard for him to turn off that archery part of his brain that made him want to be within 15 yards and to perfectly play the wind and um, to like really limit your sight lines because we talk about it a lot, Mark, but when you're bow hunting, you want to be in a position to kill deer, not not just see deer. Um, and, and if you're coming from the bow hunting world and going to gun hunting, you really have to think about how different your rifle setups should be, um, which often means like giving yourself the opportunity to see 600 yards and, and just needing to like close the distance from that 600 to 300 um, to make a shot. And so really like think about when you're scouting and when you're looking at onyx and when you're walking to your tree stand to do a bow hunt like how you would do this differently to kill one of these deer with a gun because it if you want to be like a good gun hunter it needs to be different you you can't be hunting the same sort of setups and and have that same mindset um gun hunting is much easier than archery hunting but that doesn't mean that it's like such a smooth transition that um you just take all of your knowledge from this thing and apply it to this thing and you're kill, going to kill more deer. Um, a, a lot of it is just like trial and error. But again, be thinking about how every gun hunt would be different than a bow hunt when you're in those situations. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, guys, 
Uh, Spencer, you're you're particularly good at this last thing, which is plugging articles on the site. We've got a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> we've got a lot of stuff on this topic, right? Is there any plug you want to give for specific articles, or just you want to send them to the meter, or what do you want to plug here when it comes to helping people learn more on this topic? I was going to bring this up whether or not you prompted me, Mark. So I'm glad that you <laughs> you threw it out there for me. Um, our best content on choosing a rifle and uh, customizing a rifle and just being a better, uh, more accurate shot comes from Jordan. And so the best content that we have, if you go to themeateater.com and you look at our crew page, which has everybody like Steve, Giannis, Mark, Cal, those folks, you're also gonna see Jordan's name there. Click on Jordan's name and scroll back. He's been writing for us, I think since 2019 or something like that. Um, if you're whether you're choosing a cartridge or you're trying to be more accurate, Jordan writes the best stuff we have on those topics. So Jordan Sillers on the mediator.com. Uh, you're going to get more info than you even need on this. Awesome. Well, uh, <laughs> gentlemen, I appreciate the time. This is good stuff, stuff that I needed and uh, hopefully a lot of other people, too. Thank you. I like this new mark that is uh, giving John <laughs> Hunter some love and, and killing uh, four deer a year with a rifle that's that's a lot of fun i like it we gotta we gotta do a western whitetail gun hunt spencer i, I gotta join you in one of these and, and get it done together i'm into it all right guys cool thanks mark appreciate it all right and that is a wrap thank you for tuning in like spencer mentioned be sure to check out all the different stuff we've got going on the wired to hunt website lots of great articles about firearm hunting for deer and plenty others too. So I uh, hope you enjoy this one. Stay tuned. Next week, we'll continue this discussion, more bow honing focus, but all things shooting and making sure we are more accurate in the field, getting ready for our best season ever. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more.